Everything Changes. That's Peggy Seeger from her latest CD of the same name. And Peggy Seeger is on the line. Hi, Peggy. (laughs) Hello. Yes, I'm hanging on like a sparrow. You are hanging on. Well, that song I just played, that is about you growing up. Well, actually, the song has... I I, I grew up in in and around Washington, D.C., but the song itself has two sources. The idea I got from... Susan Forbes, she was a wonderful folk DJ in Rhode Island, and she uh, was summarily dismissed after 20 years, and she came up to Boston to talk to me, and she dropped by her old family home and uh, was distressed, completely distressed by the way everything had been chopped down around her home. My home was in Chevy Chase. Uh, just outside Washington, D.C. And if you look into the history of Chevy Chase, it's a protected suburb that was meant for the affluent upper middle class. And it it is protected with a whole lot of rules and regulations, and it still looks almost exactly like it did when I grew up. But I used the image of Susan's house, and then I dedicated the song to my mother. There's huge sections of it from my growing up, like roaming the the neighborhood at night, which you could do and play hide-and-seek. As long as you were within earshot, you could hide anywhere, which is amazing, you know, when you think you can't do anything like that these days. And to my mother, who died when I was 18, and whom I mourn literally every day. She would just love my life now. (laughs) You know, she'd be astounded at it, but she would just follow it with, with great zeal. Your mother was a, quite a fascinating person. She was an award-winning composer. She worked closely with Alan Lomax, transposing a lot of the music he collected into songbooks. And you grew up with her, with the music she played all the time. 
from as far back as I can remember. It was at the house in Dallas Avenue in Silver Springs. We moved there when I was just over one year old. Uh, we moved away from there when I was eight. But those are the years that I remember for the transcriptions because it was one great big living room, and we played in one corner, and she did her transcription and, and the sewing machine in the other corner. So the songs were just always coming at us. It's sad that she died before you really got to know her, but... Tragic. Yeah. It's tragic. It's more than sad, Michael. It's tragic. Because she was just beginning to write, uh, to compose again, when her children got to the age when they didn't, when we didn't, we weren't needing her so much, you know? And she was quite ahead of her time. Very much so. Growing up, your older half-brothers, Pete Seeger and... I, I kind of realized reading the book that almost your entire childhood he was under indictment. He was under indictment, I think, from, what, 51 onward? And by that time, I was 16. At least I don't remember it being a subject that was much under discussion until I was 14 or 15, 16, somewhere there. Were you able to spend a lot of time with him? Whenever he came down, once we started playing banjos and guitars... Whenever he t- came down, we had sing-songs. And he, he'd always, he always brought new songs. It was wonderful. There's a mention in your book. Well, I didn't even mention your book. You have a new memoir called First Time Ever, and it's actually on the heels of a, a, a biography that was just written about you. The biography uh, is a very truthful book. Uh, it, it, if you want to know who I was, read the biography. If you want to know who I think I was, read the memoir. But they both go together. If you read the biography first, that tells you what I was born into. And it's a wonderful background for the whole period of the 1930s and 40s, which a lot of folk people these days don't know about. And so that was the the ground upon which the seed of Mike and Peggy were, were, were sown. It's a wonderful book. Uh, but my 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 memoir uh, kind of wanders all over the place. It is a narrative, but it does wander a bit. <laughs> when did you plan to write a memoir? I didn't plan to write it. In 1989, um, Ewan McCall died. I refer to him as my first life partner. And we spent 32 years together. Uh, and it was real together, 24-7. Neither of us went off to a 9-to-5 job. We, were, uh, we lived in each other's pockets for 32 years, traveling, then home. Uh, and he, when he died, I kind of didn't know who I was. And uh, by 1991 or so, I had a new life partner, Irene uh, Piper Scott, my, my best friend. I fell in love with her. And she had the perfect answer to somebody who didn't know who they were. She said, write your life. Write your life down. So I started um, writing every day. I I did an installment of it and handed it to her in the form of a letter. Um, And I amassed a whole pile of these things. And it would have been about eight or nine years ago, I was in, um, it was Woodstock. I was singing at, uh, there with, with my brother Pete. And uh, I was 
having breakfast with a dear friend, Brian Reese, who loves the ballads. He loves the ballads. And I mentioned that I had all these pieces of paper that I didn't know what to do with. He said, send the whole lot to me. So I sent it to him. It was about 160,000 words. And he put it into a kind of rough order, uh, what he thought was most interesting, and sent it back. And it's been through any number of people's hands of editing and helping and suggesting. My kids, two dear friends, including uh, the woman who wrote the, autobi- uh, who wrote the biography, Jean Friedman, she was invaluable. And my other friend over here, Sheila Neuling, who does editing, both of them went through the whole thing methodically. And then I took some of it on board, some of it not. And then I sent it to my children, and they made suggestions. So it's been through a lot of, you know, <laughs> it's been through the wars. I'm happy with it. I'm happy with it. It's, it's such a wonderful read, and I find it incredibly personal. I was, but a lot of it was information rather than, uh, you know, involving other people, my behavior with other people. Your life was quite fascinating. Uh, I guess let's start with the World Youth Festival. When you were a teenager, you found yourself in Russia. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was in my 20s, about 22 when I went there. Why did you go and what did you get out of it? Well, the book gives all. Um, I went because I was invited. <laughs> Not personally. I was part of a group of Americans that went to Moscow in 1957 for the World Youth Festival. And there were about several hundred of us. We weren't a delegation. But at the end of that festival, the Chinese asked all of us, all of us Americans, to go to China. And, of course, all hell broke loose, uh, because this was the middle of the Cold War. Uh, and uh, we, we had a lot of threats from the State Department. Christian Herter called each of us and spoke to us on the phone. That must have taken a lot of time. Hmm. And all but 41 of us uh, decided not to go. But my father phoned, and he said, look, he said, you'll never get another chance like this. Go now. It's an incredible time to visit China. Uh, So I went. It was a personal decision. But despite the repercussions? Well, uh, I... I've never worried much about repercussions. I still don't. I just do what I fancy doing. You do have your own path. The thing that's just in my mind right now is that you're two life partners. Uh, Why do you call them life partners? I'm a Gemini. I have two (laughs) lives. The first life partner was you and McCall. And I've been with Irene for 28 years. Irene... And what's unusual about that relationship is that you you don't live together. <laughs> no, no. We have trouble living together. Uh, we we want different things from the way we live. She lives in the boondocks in New Zealand. I like being in among the crowd. Um, she likes to have the radio on all the time. I like quiet in the house. I have a I have a whirlpool. Um, merry-go-round roller coaster life. She tried it for a while and didn't like it. Um, and I go away from home too much on tour. You know, it's not the kind of life she wants to lead. So she 
She lives alone down there. I live alone up here, and we see each other for six months of the year in three-month segments. You lived with Ewan McCall and eventually married Ewan McCall, even though he uh, is... How much older was he? He was 20 years older than me. He was 20 years older than you and married. And how did you and his, his wife at the time get along? We didn't. We totally didn't. And that well, how did you think we got on? That's a silly question. Well, it's a silly question, but it's, it's unusual that you kind of ignored the fact that he was married. He ignored the fact that he was married. <laughs> it's not my responsibility if he's married. Well, that's why Jean didn't like you, I assume. Well, why should she like the, the woman who took her husband? But the, the marriage was in trouble anyway. They'd both been unfaithful. They're both dead, so I can say that. Mm-hmm. They'd both been unfaithful. What kind of a marriage is that? Well, that still must have made life for you rather uncomfortable, knowing that... Very. Well, you'll have to read the book. Come on. Okay. Well, I enjoyed the book. Like I say, I read the book, but it's, it's, it's an unusual relationship, as well as the one with Irene Scott, because you, you were surprised you fell in love with a woman. Well, I'm, I'd known her for 10 years. I mean, wouldn't you be surprised? Are you, are you gay? No. Would you be surprised if you fell in love with a man? Yes. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. So why are you surprised that I was surprised? Well, uh, I, I see your point. Uh-huh. It's a good point. What also is unusual is that you were an American in England, and, and you brought the American folk mentality to England. Uh, no, I didn't bring it. It was already there. It was already there. How do you mean? Well, there were America, there were jazz musicians in England who went down to New Orleans. I've forgotten the name of the fam- famous one. He went down to New Orleans and, and, and learned how to play the way they play down there, then brought it back to England and started a huge jazz movement over here. That was uh, the birth Alan of the... Alan Lomax yeah. was the one who brought American music to England in the early 50s, before I even got, got here. Is it safe to say you uh, brought the banjo to England? Uh well, the banjo existed here, but it existed more in a four-string four banjo. Uh, I was just the right person at the right place. I was the right sex, the right age. I played the right instruments. I sang the right songs. And I was foolhardy and adventurous, and I just turned up here. And it was the right time to be here when already people were, were singing and playing the songs that I'd been brought up with. Abominably, I will say. You knew Alan Lomax from uh, his relationship with your mother. I knew him from childhood. From childhood. Two years old. That, that's when he first visited my mother and father. My mother and father worked with him in the 30s. How is, how is it that you met Leadbelly the first time? I didn't meet him. I went to the door uh, to answer the door with my brother Mike, and there he was. <laughs> when I was about... <laughs> probably about four or five or six or something like that. Great big blue-black man. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. meet him. I didn't know him, you know. I, I saw him perform with Pete in a boxing ring in Washington. I would have been six or seven. I remember it very well. The memoir was made easier by the fact that I have a... I don't have a, a brain. I have a camera up there, and I take snapshots. And I have an enormous gallery of snapshots. I remember sitting and watching 
and climb up onto what, what had been a boxing ring, but the ropes were all slack, you know. And they were singing, but it was very, very rudimentary microphones and wandering around the stage. I thought it was very funny, you know, because I had seen one or two stage shows where you sat and the stage was right in front of you, but not a boxing ring with an audience all the way around. That didn't seem... <laughs> yeah. That's the only times I ever saw Lead Belly was those two times. Well, Alan Lomax brought you to England. He wanted you to join uh, a group uh, that he was going to call the Ramblers. He he wanted mm-hmm. to, he wanted to create like a Weavers type band in England. Yeah, he wanted to create England's answer to the Weavers. And that's where you first met Ewan. Yep. And uh, whatever became of the Ramblers? Well, we were a non. We were there was too many people from different kinds of music in it. We had a Nigerian drummer. We had two uh, jazz musicians. We had a session musician. We had three unaccompanied English singers. We had Alan and me. Well, that's a crazy mixture. There was too many of us for a start. The Weavers had three. Peter, Paul, and Mary had three. Most groups have four. We were unwieldy. And Alan just wanted to popularize folk music. And he was a wonderful singer, Alan, but he got very, very nervous. Very nervous. There's a very interesting point in the book where you said he was eating on stage while you were playing? Well, they all, they all used to eat on stage. That makes no sense. I know it doesn't. That's why I put a stop to it. It was horrible. They'd bring sandwiches and they'd eat on stage. What? <laughs> This is a new kind of music in England, remember. The informality of it was absolutely unknown. Anybody could get up and sing a song they'd learned the day before. Your book does a very good job of of the transition between traditional folk music and popular folk music, when, when, when I guess people took folk music seriously? Well, we took it seriously, but... Um, the pub is an unusual institution, and the British Revival owes its longevity to the fact that the pub is not just a drinking joint, it's a social place, and almost all pubs have a public room where you can go and, and, and have a function. You can have a wedding, a funeral, you can have a concert of any type. You can have a children's party in a pub. Did you know that? No. Well, Children aren't allowed at the bar, but they're allowed in the public room. So people of all ages came. They came with their children. They came with their grannies. Do you think folk music took a hit when it became a, uh, a performance? No, possibly. Was that a difficult transition for you? No, not at all. I think what became more difficult for me is when they started dressing folk music up in a whole stack of instruments and heavy harmony and started getting a performance ethic. The critics group that you started, you started that because you thought it was funny listening to a version of Rock Island Line British artists? Not necessarily. There was a time when everybody who got up to sing in a folk club sang American songs. And you'd have people of all nationalities turning up and singing songs in languages they couldn't even speak. And 
our club at a certain point said, look, if you're going to get up on the stage in this club, you have to sing songs that come from the culture that you were brought up in, in a language that you understand and are fluent in. And that was novel. That, that took away Cockneys singing Lead Belly. Took away me singing French songs. That took away Ewan singing American songs. And it meant when it, when it spread as an idea, people latched onto it because the English and the Scots have been anthologists of folk music since the year dot. Mm-hmm. And there were all these books and anthologies of, of folk songs. We had collectors who went out in this country and collected all these songs. So people started learning from the, the books, from their grannies, uh, from their neighbors, from people in pubs. So now it's quite unusual to have an English person getting up and singing American songs on the stage in the folk revolts. They mostly sing English songs. The critics group came in is because people who hadn't been brought up singing folk songs, they'd heard music hall, they'd heard jazz, they'd heard pop, they'd heard classical. But the method of folk singing is very different from doing any other kind of music. It is very different. Peggy Seeger is on the line. We don't have time to talk about everything, but I do want to play a couple more songs. Tell me about, from your latest CD, Everything Changes, tell me about Nero's Children. Right. Well, that CD doesn't have a single folk song on it. My son Callum and I put it together, and uh, he suggested that that we use a small band, uh, four musicians, one of which he was one. And we chose songs that we just really liked. I've chosen Nero's Children because I think it's one of the best ecological songs that I've written. You know, we all know what we should do. We should conserve. We should recycle. We should not use plastic water bottles. We should not do this. We should not do that. Uh, But this is a kind of song which, just coming at the whole subject sideways, I like it because it's an imaginative way of of doing it. I'm I'm doing a protest song festival next week in in Dublin, political songs. And people usually think of political songs as marching and holding your fist up and talking about the boss. But I think it's very effective just to describe a situation and let people see how there's really only one thing to do to solve the situation. And everybody do it at their own level and their own ability. So Nero's Children just talks about the way we treat the earth. Noah's children play with matches Noah's children cannot swim Adam's children kill each other And sing of love and money Tune the fiddle, build the ark Dance in the dark Ashes to dust in God we trust And dream of love and money Split the sky, trample flowers Set the ice on fire Home was built in a year 
burnt in an hour for love of money. The baby's crying Mother's dying Behind the bedroom door Strike the match, light the candle Head for land and swim Save each other, save your mother Sing of love, of love, of love. Sing of milk and honey. Nero's Children, that's from Peggy Seeger's latest CD, Everything Changes. Peggy also has a new memoir, first time ever about her her life. Every songwriter should read this book because there should never be a shortage of subjects to write about. Well, one of the oddest songs on Everything Changes on, on that album is the one called Over the Mountain to You. Uh, when I was 10... My mother was teaching me piano from the time I was six. And when I was ten, she was teaching me how to play sixth, the interval of the sixth, in a lot of different keys on the piano. And so I made up this little funny tune that was just with sixth in the right hand. And my father and I sang Spanish songs together, so the, the tune had a kind of a slightly Spanish feel to it. I drove the family crazy with it, just playing it over and over again. And uh, I happened to be playing it to Irene when I was in my mid-70s. And all of a sudden, the text came into my head. And I always regarded it as a silly song. But I sang it to Callum as a possibility for going on the new album. And he fell in love with it. And it's, it's kind of a, a circular one. And people latch on to, to it. And it's repetitive lines. And it's a bit complicated, but they do learn it. They do learn it and sing along with it, you know, um, when I do it in concert. Peggy Seeger, I could talk to you for much longer, but uh, I'm going to finish the interview with Over the Mountain to you, and thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Well, calling all the way from Florida, I think that's a lovely thing to do. I really do. Well, you live in Oxford. You live in England now. Yes, I do. I live in Oxford, yeah. Oxford is, is an old town. It's drowning in tourists. But on a Sunday morning, it's absolutely fantastic. And it's a hub. You can get almost anywhere from Oxford, even though it's not in the middle of the country. So it was my choice of, 
a place to live. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. All right, Michael. And hello to everybody listening to the show. You're lucky to have people like Michael. You're lucky to have your whole public radio system. We don't have that here. We have one or two folk programs, but we don't have, you know, what I used to call the W channels, WFBR, W this, W that. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm Americans are so lucky to have that. Thank you, Peggy. You're welcome. There's a path that leads from my door Through the garden gate to the lane That runs through the field of corn To the road that goes to the town where I was born Onto the highway then down in the valley And over the mountain to you Summer and fall I answer the call Winter and spring I make my way singing To the lane that runs through the field of corn To the road that goes to the town where I was born Onto the highway and down in the valley And over the mountain to you There's a path that leads from your door Through the garden gate to the lane That runs through the field of corn To the road that goes to the town Where you were born Onto the highway and down in the valley And over the mountain to me Summer and fall you answer the call Winter and spring you make your way singing To the lane that runs through the field of corn To the road that goes to the town where you were born Onto the highway and down in the valley And over the mountain to me There's a path that leads from my door Through the garden gate to the 